Good morning, everyone. Let's just pray uh, before we open up God's word. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that you have revealed yourself to us and you've done that in a way that we can understand. Uh, Lord, we don't always fully appreciate or understand some of the hard parts and this morning we're going to talk about hard things. But thankful, we are thankful and I am thankful that you have given us, even on this topic, a teaching, an instruction, a direction, a call. Lord, humble us in this moment to understand what you say to us and what that means. Lord, give us great, great uh, grace as well and give me great grace as this is not a light topic and there is much hurt. Father, above all things, let us see you this morning and see you as the one who heals and redeems and restores and forgives. We ask this in the precious name of your Son. Amen. Uh, In our recent series, we've been looking at biblical relationships. Uh, We've covered a lot of ground. Uh, We've looked at friendship, we've looked at dating, uh, we've looked at marriage and sex and parenting and children last week. Uh, We're finishing this week on a very somber topic in some ways. Um, on the topic of death, divorce, and remarriage. Uh, before we start, I just have to be honest, I'm, I'm very uncomfortable talking about this. I hope that is clear. I hope what is also clear is that I'm not an expert on these things. I have not walked where so many of you have walked. Um, I know many that have. I know the pain, and I also know the uniqueness of a life situation and specific context that I simply won't be able to speak to this morning. So please do come and speak to me or one of the pastoral team afterwards if you have uh, any further things that you want to talk through. I know this is a topic that just can't be covered um, in one sermon. So with that aside, and I in advance ask your apologies. Ask I apologise to you in advance. You don't have to apologise to me. (laughs) That's how awkward I am already. There we go. (laughs) And we think about relationships, which is what we've been doing over this uh, last few weeks. The difficult thing about all relationships is that they are limited. They're limited. They're limited by human morality and human mortality. They're limited by sin the things we do that are against God's design and command, and they're limited by death. Uh, The reality of talking about relationships is that we must talk about sin and its consequences on relationships, and also the fact that we must prepare ourselves in some way or another, the best way we can, for the end of every relationship that we know in this world. The Bible does speak to issues such as death, divorce, and remarriage. The Bible does talk about these things. And we'd be very wise to to ponder what it says and seek to understand what it says. Not just because one day we will face the death of someone we love, but so we can be prepared also with biblical 
compassion uh, to those around us who are grieving loss or grieving relationship breakdown. We do want to spend time this morning specifically thinking about a marriage and what ends a marriage. Um, when we speak of death, we're more this morning talking about death of a spouse. Um, but neither death nor sin has the final word on anything in our lives when we follow Jesus. Jesus has the final word. He has conquered death by rising from the dead. But he's also conquered sin. And we look forward one day to the full consummation of his kingdom when sin is no more and that we don't have to talk about some of these things anymore. The final word that Jesus offers to us even before we start, because I'd rather have you remember all of this part, is that Jesus offers us eternity of peace and joy and completeness and fullness in him forever uh, when we place our trust in him. His death and his resurrection, which we've already remembered this morning, for all those who believe in him, the future is so bright and that hope is so sure. So with that in mind this morning, we do want to do things a little differently. We obviously, uh, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7 a little later. But firstly, we just need to make sure we know what marriage is. We want to establish what Scripture says about marriage. What does Scripture say marriage is? Then we will think about, well, how can marriage end? There's one way that it absolutely ends, and there's one way it could end. But then what does all that mean? And what does it mean for us? So I hope you'll bear with me and um, please, at, like I said, please at the end, if there's anything that's unclear, needs clarification, please come and speak to me. Sorry. I think that's all right. Okay. Good start. So what is marriage? What is marriage, firstly, just briefly? Well, marriage is defined right from the beginning of the Bible, uh, the revelation of God to us, as a lifelong bond between one man and one woman. Uh, God brings Adam and Eve together right there in the garden, makes them one flesh. We read that in Genesis 2 and verse 24. This is God's design for marriage. This is the ideal for marriage. This is God's plan for marriage. One man, one woman for life. We notice God does this before sin, before the fall, before even the law is given. We know where Genesis comes in the Bible. It's right at the very beginning. After those books, we get the law. And the law came in, we're told, because of sin. Because we don't live up to God's standards. We certainly don't meet his ideals. But Jesus, so God makes this the ideal, the plan. One woman, one man for life. Jesus, in the New Testament, Jesus comes, he affirms God's good design. We see that actually in Matthew uh, chapter 19, where people come to Jesus to question him on divorce. And he says in Matthew 19 and verse, um, verse 4 to 6, he quotes from Genesis 2 and says about what God has done. This is, have you not read, he who created them, from the beginning, made them male and female. This is Jesus speaking. And he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, as two shall become one flesh. They're no longer two, but one flesh. What God has joined together, 
no man should separate. Those are Jesus' words about marriage. So we see it's the bond of one man, one woman. It's lifelong. Uh, other parts of scripture, which uh, we'll get to. Uh, Romans 7 it reiterates the same thing that's been read for us in 1 Corinthians 7.39, that death ends a marriage. We see that it's God that joins the man and the woman together in this way. Think of marriage a lot like glue. There's two things uniquely becoming one. They're bonded together in a bond that is not designed to be pulled apart. If you had two pieces of paper and you glued them together, they're not designed, therefore, to be ripped apart. And this joining together, this is a lifelong commitment that both parties will be entering into this relationship, that they'll be together in this way while they're still alive. Well, if that's what marriage is, I've gone to great lengths just to flesh that out a bit, what could end, what could end a marriage? What does the Bible say about how a marriage could end? So it says something about how, what a marriage is, so what does it say about how a marriage could end? You might be surprised that the Bible actually tells us that marriage is temporary. It's only for this life. It is only for this life. Mandy's read for us from 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 39, where we're told that a wife or a husband is only bound to their spouse as long as they live. We see from this that death does end a marriage. Death does end a marriage. As you've already figured out, this is a heavy topic, so I hope you'll just forgive a bit of lightness for a moment. Uh, during the start of the pandemic, uh, when the restrictions were at their most extreme, I told my dear wife, I had permission to tell this story, it's all right, that she needed to know where some key things were, where some key documents and things about the house and all that sort of stuff is kept, just in case anything were to happen to me and her new husband needed to know where they were. Her very loving response to me was, don't worry, I'm not going to remarry. I was like, oh, that's, that's nice. She quickly backed that up with, um, jokingly, with, because she was only allowed five people at the wedding. And if she just had a funeral with ten people with me, that's just not fair. She could only have five people at her next wedding, so she wasn't going to get remarried. She was joking, but... One of the most serious and most bittersweet things and lines you'll ever hear anyone say is, till death do we part. Uh, this is a commitment heard in wedding ceremonies, and we often don't think of it in too great a detail other than it's just a nice sentiment. Um, it's just something a bit poetic that you might say that makes you feel warm and fuzzy. But it's actually one of the most serious and the most precious things you could say to another human being in this life. It's not just hyperbole. It's not just um, overstating the fact. It's true and it's sobering and it's beautiful at the same time. That echoes, that truth echoes the teaching of Scripture. Till death do you part. 1 Corinthians 7.39 tells us that. 
the wife or the husband is bound to their spouse as long as the other lives. Some people imply that Paul writes so much about widowhood and uh, widowing, uh, how to treat widows and how to interact with those who have lost a spouse because he himself may have been someone who'd lost a spouse. We know he was single. And there seems a lot of hints through his life that he had suffered a great loss at some stage. We don't know that for certain, but Paul clearly ministered to people that had lost spouses and was dealing with churches where this was happening. Jesus himself taught on what happens as far as marriage goes and what happens at death. And it's just good to, as a bit of a sidebar, Matthew 22, Jesus is again, um, someone comes to him with a tricky question, trying to trap him, and it has to do with marriage, um, about what happens after death to someone who's been married to multiple people. And Jesus, in instructing that, said there's, there's no marriage in heaven will be as the angels, whatever that looks like. Marriage then, Jesus instructs us, and Paul and all the Bible says, is only for this life. It is temporary. It's an important thing just to note. It's important to note that all of our marriages, if we are married, are meant to prepare us for something. But they're not the ultimate thing themselves. It's also important to note that death is not a part of God's original design either. Death was not a part of God's plan. Death is a result of sin. We're told in Romans 6 that the wages of sin is death. So death is to be grieved. And for those who have experienced especially the death of a spouse, that, that grief especially is just incomparable and painful. Death tears apart what God has joined together. And it's always done in a way that's too soon. In the sense there's always one spouse left behind. Uh, the Bible speaks to this. The Bible speaks to those who are grieving, who have suffered the loss of a spouse. It gives great comfort. Jesus himself said, blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. And we know that that kind of grief can last a long time. It goes deep. But the Bible tells us, although mourning can last for a certain extended period, the joy can come again. We're also told that someone who has lost and suffered the death of a spouse is free to remarry, so long as they remarry someone who is in the Lord, a Christian, a believer. But that doesn't have to happen either. Paul goes to great lengths through all of 1 Corinthians 7 to point out that could happen, but it doesn't have to happen. You don't have to do that. You don't have to do this or do that in order to fully serve God. But it can happen. So while the death of a spouse ends this lifelong commitment of service and love to one another, it's not the end of love itself. It's not... Uh, the end, especially for a follower of Jesus, is not the end for them of how they can love and serve him in this life. And for the church, uh, for us as people that gather around, we will have those among us that suffer this kind of loss and have suffered this kind of loss. Scripture tells us so much about how we should care for widows and those who have lost a spouse. Uh, our care and compassion for them indicates the kind of people that we are, Scripture tells us. 
James tells us that pure religion, the pure expression of our faith in practice is to visit the fatherless and the widows. Isaiah, as we've had read for us this morning, also spoke of the need for us to plead the cause of the widow, those who have nothing and no one. So there's much we can learn from Scripture about how to care for those who have experienced this. But moving on from verses 39 and 40 of 1 Corinthians 7, we want to move to another thing. So if death does end a marriage commitment, what else can end? Not what else does end, but what else can end? Well, sin can end. It can, but it does not have to end a marriage. Paul talks about uh, this issue in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 to 17. He teaches about this topic of divorce and remarriage. And he has three things I sort of want us to think about this morning. It has a call for believers, especially, to remain as they are, stay as you are. That's the first thing we sort of see as we read 1 Corinthians 7 as a whole. He also has uh, this where he provides exceptions because he knows life is complex and sin abounds. But he also reminds believers that God has called us to peace. Those are the three key things that Paul brings out in these verses as he's talking about this topic of divorce and remarriage. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever endured an episode of Maths. Those of you who laugh know what that stands for. That's a bit sad. I'll explain it to everybody else. <laughs> Married at First Sight is a TV reality show. You are not missing anything if you haven't watched it. Um, anyway, but I'm not sure if you've ever endured an episode. Uh, the concept is that relationship experts and psychologists, in a certain sense, match two strangers together. Uh, they plan a wedding, and the first time these two people see each other is on the wedding day the wedding day, when they get married. What I'm told soon becomes apparent to anyone that has watched the show uh, is that long-term committed marriages is not the goal of the TV producers. The goal of the TV producers is for ratings, so they build drama, they, they feed the, all the sorts of rubbish that goes around that, the drunkenness and the infidelity is sort of maximised for ratings. And this show and others, like The Bachelor and The Bachelorette and Farmer Wants a Wife and all those sorts of things, all of these things in our society build up something in us. They, they connect with something. We want to see romance happen. We want to see people get together. We want to see love. And sometimes we want to see that at any cost. And a lot of these shows speak to how our current culture views marriage. You just explore all your options, multiple options at the same time, even. Endless hookups, and all with multiple in the name of love. Paul, I think, would have something to say to our society and to our culture, just as he did to these people in a church at Corinth nearly 2,000 years ago, who had very many similar issues in how they approached sex, and how they approached marriage, and how they just had a very shallow view of the understanding of love even as to begin with. And Paul's instructions to believers, especially as he's speaking to these topics of sex, of marriage, of divorce and remarriage, he says, 
take it seriously. Take it seriously. Be sober about this. Take it seriously and stay as you are. Remain as you are. This is a repeated statement by Paul throughout this whole chapter in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Is that believers should not seek a change in their relationship status, but they should remain as they are. Verse 2, verse 8, verse 10, verse 11, verse 12 to 16, verse 26, 27, 37, 40. Some of those we've read this morning. He all, all of them repeat this frame in a certain way of phrasing, stay as you are, remain as you are. Even around the section that we're looking at this morning, or even just before it, verse 8, to the single or widowed person, remain as you are. Verse 10 and 11, to the married person, stay as you are. To the divorced person, remain as you are, verse 11. To the person married to a non-Christian, remain as you are, verses 12 to 16. Each person, just in case we've missed it in verse 17, stay as you are. The reason for this, Paul's emphasis on this, is that God calls you to where you are. God's calling is always current about where you are in a certain sense. He always hopes for something better. He wants you to become more like Christ. But your relationship status does not affect that. God never calls us to something other than we are in order to serve him. Never. He always calls us as we are, whether we're single, whether we're married, whether we've had all sorts of history. It doesn't matter. God calls us as we are and who we are to serve him with who we are. Now, if we're to stay as we are, that automatically just, there's something inside us that's not, I'm not comfortable as I am. What is, are there any exceptions to this? Because my unique life circumstance is quite different. Paul didn't know about that, about what I'm going through. And Paul would actually probably agree with you because he gives you exceptions. Paul gives exceptions to these rules. He's very aware that everyone has a difficult life that everyone's unique life situation is complex. He's also very aware that everyone lives for themselves and they do need guidelines directly from God and from his spirit. But he knows that sin abounds. He knows that sin is everywhere, that it's in us and it's in the people around us. So he gives exceptions. Go back through that list we just read. If verse 8 was for the single and widow to remain as they are, verse 9 says... He says, but if you're single and you cannot be self-controlled, get married. In verse 10, 11, he says, to the married, stay as you are. Divorce should be avoided. In verse 11, he acknowledges that it happens. But if she does, he says. It shouldn't happen, but because it does, this is what should happen. He goes on later on. Uh, when he's talking about the unbelieving spouse, leaving the believing spouse, all those sorts of backwards and forwards, he gives an exception there as well. If they are divorced, one should remain unmarried. But in the case of unbelieving spouses, leaving believing spouses, in such cases like that, in such instances, the believing spouse isn't bound, he says. Because, verse 15 tells us, God has called you to peace. 
So Paul gives these instructions that we should remain as we are, but he also knows that life is complex and sin abounds in us and around us, so he gives exceptions. And his ultimate call is that God has called us to peace in all of our relationships. I want to spend some time now just digging in a little bit about what Scripture says about this topic a little bit more. And in these verses, in, firstly in particular, in verses 10 and 11, Paul initially makes this um, statement prohibiting divorce and remarriage, saying, no, you cannot do it. The Lord has said the wife should not separate from her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife at the end of verse 11. There's a clear prohibition there and it comes direct from the Lord. Paul is quoting Jesus. But then later on in verse 15, Paul gives that exception. Verse 15 starts with a but, a condition. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Now Paul in that section, though, is not giving a command from Jesus. Do you notice how the wording is a little bit different? Verse 10, when he's giving the instruction, he says, not I, but the Lord. This is the Lord giving this instruction. I'm just repeating what Jesus has taught and what Jesus has said. Verse 12, he opens up with saying, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. I say this, not the Lord. What is Paul doing here? Is Paul contradicting Jesus? No. No, not at all. Paul is rightly distinguishing between an issue that something Jesus explicitly said on the topic, a teaching that Jesus explicitly gave, and then he speaks to a topic that Jesus didn't speak about. What, kind of, what happens when a Christian marries a non-Christian? Jesus didn't talk about that. Jesus didn't have to talk about that at his time. He wasn't talking to that audience or that context. And it's good to note that, that a lot of what Paul wrote and other New Testament writers are explaining for a specific context what Jesus said. What does that mean for us here and now? What does it mean? It still doesn't deny anything that Jesus said at all. It doesn't dismiss any of the teachings of Jesus or God's plan or to God's design. But how do we live this out? And this is how Paul is instructing the church at Corinth. Sidebar. Okay, we're going to do just another one of these. What did Jesus actually say about divorce and remarriage? It's good to think about. We're talking about what Paul says, but what did Jesus say? Just a brief exercise for us. I'm just going to read a couple. You can turn there if you've got your Bibles. Luke chapter 16 and verse 18. And then flick also over to Matthew 5, 31 to 32. And firstly, I just want you to hear the verses as they're read. This is Jesus speaking in both instances. Uh, Luke 16 and verse 18. This is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees who had come to him again. Uh, they were ridiculing him, actually, mocking him, making fun of him. And in part of his teaching back to their mocking is... This verse, Luke 16, verse 18. 
Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. That's Luke 16, verse 18. No exceptions. Jesus here is teaching that anyone who divorces and remarries is committing adultery. No exception in that specific context. Turn over to Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 to 32. This again is Jesus speaking. And here this is in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is addressing... um, a crowd, and he's teaching them at this stage, you've heard it said this, you've heard it said this, but I say unto you, he actually sort of, in some ways, goes to the heart of what the law was about. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 and 32 says this, it was also said, in the sense of, it's also been said, it's said in the law, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There is an exception there. Jesus gives an exception in that context that when someone divorces someone on the grounds of sexual immorality and remarries, that is Okay. What do we do with that? Well, we see what Paul did with it. He took the teachings of Jesus that were sometimes difficult to understand when you remove them from their context. And sometimes difficult to apply when we see the context of our own lives is difficult and complex. But Paul takes the teachings of Christ and says, this is how we read it. The Lord has said, Divorce is not right. There's not to be sought after, but there's exceptions. That's how Paul interpreted this. Now, in Jesus' account in both Matthew and Luke, there's different contexts that Jesus is speaking into there. There's audiences that he's addressing. There's a lot we could go into there, and again, I'm happy to talk to you afterwards about that. But he's speaking to direct culture of the time as well that had a very messed up view of divorce and remarriage. There was one school of thought that said, you can divorce for any reason. Even burnt food was a reason. There was another school of thought that said, no, you can only divorce on grounds of sexual unfaithfulness, sexual immorality. So Jesus was speaking into these sorts of contexts. Jesus actually demolishes both schools of thought because both of them had sort of drawn that out of the law and twisted the law to either excuse something that they wanted to do or condemn someone else for doing something. Jesus said, no, no, no. What was was God's design before the law? What was God's design before sin? He said, from the beginning, it wasn't so. Matthew 19, he teaches more extended on this. He said, this isn't God's design. From the beginning, it was not, it's only because of your hardness of heart that divorce came about. It's only because of sin that this has happened. There is an exception here, not to cause sin, but because of sin, if that makes sense. 
There's no flaw in God's design and purpose for marriage. There's no flaw in God's original plan of one woman and one man living in a lifelong commitment to one another. There's no flaw in that. But there's a flaw in us, Jesus says. It's the hardness of your hearts that's led to this being possible. Sin is in us and sin is around us. Back to 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 15. There's a unique little phrase there that Paul speaks to. In verse 15, in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. That's a unique phrase, but also just just generally, Paul has just been speaking of a specific instance of an unbelieving spouse deserting or leaving a believing spouse. Just a single instance. But Paul chooses to use the plural, in such cases. He could have said case, but he says cases. That might seem like semantics, but I think it's really important. Uh, Wayne Grudem and Scholar has done a lot of work on this and speaks to it directly that Paul is giving here a legitimate biblical ground that divorce is a possibility. Not only in cases of desertion by an unbeliever, but in such instances like that. There is freedom. They're not enslaved, Paul says. There's much more that we could go on to speak about. And to be honest, I don't know how much to go into because some of it can just get, the more information we get, the actual more distracted we get from what does the scripture actually tell us and what does it mean for us. Paul speaks to these exemptions, these exceptions, and unique life circumstances, because he understands. He understands not only that life is complex and that there's sin around and within, But he also, he definitely wants people to obey God's word. And to live without any unnecessary conflict or anxiety because God has called us to peace, he says. Now, I think it's important that we maintain a very high view of marriage. That we maintain the view of marriage that God does that we maintain a view of marriage that says it's one man and it's one woman and it is for life. And that that promise and commitment should not be broken. Just as death tears things apart that should not be torn apart, divorce also tears apart the one flesh union that should not be torn apart. But sin creates a world where what should not happen does happen. Divorce occurs not because it should, but because it can in this world. And in Scripture, both Jesus and Paul show that divorce in certain situations is permissible. Not sought after, not desired, not at all esteemed, and definitely not commanded, but permissible. And only because of sin, and so no further sin can be committed. 
One person put it this way, not all divorce is sinful, but all divorce is the result of sin. And the bad news is that sin does mar everything. Sin messes up everything. Even this, the wonder of one of the most special things that we could possibly have, the wonder of, of, of marriage, sin messes that up through death and through the way sin works in our hearts and the hearts of others. The good news, of course, is there's something far, far better. That although marriage is temporary to this life, there is something that we await that's far better. The ultimate aim of every follower of Jesus is not marital bliss. Paul goes to great pains in 1 Corinthians 7 to say that not everyone will be married, not everyone has to be married in order to experience fullness of joy in Christ and fullness of joy in life. The ultimate aim of every Christian is that we can be like Jesus and spend eternity with him in that place where there's going to be no more death, no more pain. And everything in this life, in some way, is meant to make us like him. But in the meantime, when we're still here, we're still suffering. And we still see how sin affects us and others. There's a couple of notes of, I suppose, application that I want to spend some time on. So I think we have to be careful with this. Because when we look at this and say, well, Jesus and Paul gave exceptions, then it's okay. Divorce is okay. That's not what Jesus and Paul intended. It's not what God had all laid out. Divorce is not okay, but it is permissible. We have to exercise caution that we don't prohibit, though, as well, what God has permitted. Much damage can be done in not understanding what Scripture says on this topic. Much hurt can be suffered. People can go back to extremely horrible situations because of horrible teaching on this. Both Paul and Jesus also call for spouses to be reconciled. Reconciliation is always to be pursued. It's the first and the long-term option. God has called us to peace. There's also, of course, since God has called you to peace... And there's many in our lives that we know, maybe we've experienced it personally ourselves, that do not have peace. They suffer greatly. There are horrible marriages, terrible marriages, marriages that can be restored. God can redeem the most broken of things. But there are those who are in horrific circumstances under threat of life even. God has called you to peace. You do not have to submit yourself to that. Nowhere in scripture will you find anywhere of God calling you to submit to that kind of scenario. In such cases, you are not enslaved. You are free. And God has called you to peace. 
What does all this mean for us this morning? We'll start generally. Uh, in general, we all, all of us, all of us must accept that our relationship status is not a prerequisite for how we get into heaven. If you are single, married, widowed, divorced, separated, remarried, your only requirement for entry into heaven is your faith in Jesus Christ. Your, relationship, your relationships in this life matter, and they matter to God, because, but only because of how they reflect how he loves you and how you have responded to that. Narrowed in more specifically to speak to those who might be considering marriage in their future. Marriage is not to be entered into lightly or flippantly. The vows you make are the most important you may make in your life. Prepare for them well. Examining your heart, examining your motives, getting objective external uh, feedback on your relationship, getting good premarital help and counselling. So you can be built up in God, godly principles and truths that will equip you for the storms that you will face when you are married. R marriage is meant to reflect the love that Jesus has for us. Jesus did not enter his relationship with us half-heartedly or unprepared. He held nothing of himself back and he was prepared to do everything necessary for us. And a marriage is meant to mirror that. I speak as well to those who are married and maybe have given thought to divorce because of sin of any kind. God calls you to peace. I've already sort of said it, but it bears repeating. That means you must absolutely seek peace. Scripture tells us as much as lies within you, as much as you are responsible for, live peaceably with all men. Reconciliation is the first and the long-term option. But as I've said, it also means that God has called you to peace, not to constant war, not to constant conflict, not to constant horrific abuse. And also would say, in that scenario, you'd be sure that you are not alone. You are not alone. God is with you. He had you in mind. You are not enslaved. For those who are divorced, know that Jesus knew of you. He knew your needs. He knew your hurts. He knew your betrayals that you've experienced. He knew your wounds. And he carried them, took them on himself. Paul also knew of you. And through inspiration of the Spirit, writes to you and gives you comfort and peace. Know that you are accepted. You are not your relationship status. God has called you to peace. And he has made you whole as well. For those who have been divorced and remarried, and maybe you are thinking, maybe my grounds for divorce were not biblical, whatever that reason might be, you must know too 
that God has accepted you, that Christ has accepted you, forgiven you, set you free, your sins are forgiven. If there are sins yet unconfessed, then that is, there's no better time to do that than today. But the marriage that you are in is the marriage that God has called you to. Remain as you are. Remain as you are. The word for all of us this morning is that despite our mortality, beside that, the sin that we have within us and the sin that's around us, beside the fact that we're limited to this life, that we will die, despite all of these limitations, Jesus has given us the final word, the victory. He can redeem. He can forgive. He can restore. He can make broken things whole. He can make hard hearts soft. He can bring light to darkness. He can bring the dead back to life. So often those pages, sometimes we join together that we tear apart, seem irreparable. And Christ doesn't come and just sort of try and patch it up together. He gives us a new one. So you're whole. You're complete. You have nothing lacking. You're restored. Everything and all things are new in him. The great hope that we have is not that we'll live happily ever after the ones that we love in this world. It's a nice, again, that is a sentimental, poetic thought. But a great hope for those of us that follow Jesus is not that we live happily ever after with those that we love. It's a nice thought, but it's not the best thought. The great hope that we have is that we're going to be with the one who loves us perfectly and completely forever. That marriage, that union, that union that ends all others, is far better than anything we claim to hang on to in this life. And thankfully we have the great blessing of his love now. Let's pray. Father, I cannot speak nor know the hearts of those in this room. But I ask that you would bring a great peace to those who, for whom this topic was confronting, complex, hard. Lord, bring clarity and understanding of what you desire and what your will is. But also, Lord, bring great clarity and Sight to those, including myself, that are sometimes blind, that this world is not all there is. Sin does not have the last word. Death does not have the last word. We have a risen Saviour who is interceding for us even now, seated at your right hand. And the great hope that one day we will be united with him in full union and have all things as they are meant to be. Lord, between now and then, give us your peace.
assure us of your love and surround us with those in our lives that love you and will make us more like your son. We ask this by your spirit's power.